You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. They used to joke, I'd say, you know, when I walked into Microsoft, I felt like I was walking into this well-oiled machine. You could feel the hum. When I walked into Apple, I felt like I was walking onto the set of Saturday Night Live. Former Apple CEO Gil Emilio. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Well, given the dominance of Apple in today's high-tech community, it may be hard to imagine that it was once a company that had problems with cash flow, a bloated workforce, inferior products, and a lack of company strategy. But that's the company that Gil Emilio says he walked into as CEO in early 1996. He cut costs. He slashed the staff. He tried to steer it back onto a strategic course. But by the middle of 1997, the company was still struggling and Emilio was forced out. The following year, Emilio wrote a book about his tumultuous 500 days at Apple, a book called On the Firing Line. And that's when I met him. So here now, from 1998, Gil Emilio. I'd read so many CEO books, and one of the things I said that they never did was sort of put you in their head and have you go through the the events and the emotions and the ups and downs that you go through. And it just seemed to me Apple is such a well-known company. My Certainly my tenure there was uh, adequately covered that it might be of interest to people to say, what was it like to be running Apple for those 500 days? And so what I did was, it's a very much a personal memoir, very much my point of view, but I, but I hope I've succeeded in putting you in my head and taking you along for the ride. You're telling a, you tell a great story in here. It, it reads as though you were keeping a detailed diary from day one, did you? I, I, I did not keep a detailed diary. What I did was I kept a, a folder. And every time I had something I thought might be relevant, I would just sort of throw whatever object it happened to be written on in that folder. And, uh, and, and of course, then I had recollection because I wrote this book immediately, almost uh, within a month, I started writing it after I left Apple. See, you've, you've already shattered one of my stereotypical myths. I would have thought that writing a book about a computer company, you would have had a file folder full of floppy disks. Well, you know, I had, actually, I had some, I had some of that as well, but a lot, the world still runs to a great degree on paper, and uh, I'd stash those papers. It's a remarkable, it's almost, it's almost a Kafka-esque kind of story that you tell. I'm, I'm putting myself in your position as I'm reading. You know, you've come from, Big companies where you've been in charge of you know millions of people, Rockwell and 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 the National Semiconductor. Now here come, along comes Apple. It's a relative newcomer in the field of, of, of you know the the big companies, but it's a wonderful opportunity. You're going to run things, and you come in there, and almost almost from day one, nothing is as it seems. It's almost like Alice in Wonderland. Everything is you know this makes you eat this makes you grow small. Eat this makes you grow big. Everything is upside down. Well, I used to, I used to joke. I'd say you know when I went, walked into Microsoft, I felt like I was walking into this well-oiled machine. You could feel the hum. When I walked into Apple, I felt like I was walking onto the set of Saturday Night Live, and and it, you know that's a little cruel, but not terribly harsh because there's a certain adolescent character that was in Apple's genes goes all the way back to the early days of Steve Jobs and his rebelliousness and hoisting the pirate's flag outside the building and all of that sort of stuff. And people 
kind of got that imprinted in their brains. And they said, if you're going to be really the next Steve Jobs, if you're really going to do cool things, you've got to be defiant, you've got to be independent, you've got to be contrary. How was how did you manage to walk into a company that, after all those years, had never had an official statement of strategy? Uh, beats me. Uh, I, you know, it, was, it blew it, my mind when I read that in, the, in this book. It was like uh, it was like a startup company where you don't, you know, when you're doing a startup, maybe you at one point you write down the strategy, but then sort of you get caught up in the events, and of course you can fit everybody in one room, so you just sort of shout across the room when you want to change things, and so you can live without the strategy, but. But Apple kept acting that way even after it was a $10 billion company. And frankly, it just doesn't work, obviously. I also saw a lot of behavior in here like what my, my therapist might call passive-aggressive. People in, in meetings with you, I, I take it, I'm, I'm paraphrasing you broadly here, nodding and agreeing. Mm -hmm, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, that's yeah. a wonderful thing we should do. Yeah, mm -hmm, okay. Yeah. And nothing got done. Sayonara, right? <laughs> It's incredible. You're the, you're the boss. Won't these people do this for you? Well, you know, ultimately, I got it all sorted out. Uh, it, you know, and, and the other turnarounds I did, I did, I did two uh, at uh, Rockwell, one in uh, Newport Beach, one in Dallas, and then I did National Semiconductor. The one character that, uh, that I had in all of those was that uh, they had a fairly disciplined workforce so that if I went in there and I said, okay, guys, this is what we're going to do, boy, it was a cloud of dust and everyone running in that direction. Uh, and it made it, you know, if you just had a clear thinking and you knew where the heck you were going, uh, you could get there at Apple. Um, it took me about 100 days. In my 100-day speech, I mapped the strategy for how Apple could come make it back. When I was preparing this book, I went back and I reread what I said at that speech, and I was remarkably on target. So I sort of had it figured out. I knew what we were supposed to do. It's just trying to make it happen that uh, that didn't work. And as you've just already pointed out, this uh, this contrariness. Now, I will say that the employees at the grassroot level are the real strength of the company. I always found them very reasonable, great to work with, uh, brilliant. Uh, but there was this management cadre both at the senior level and at the, at the middle level. And it took me about a year to uh, to get that sorted out. So as I started to say, at National and at Rockwell, I had to replace about a third of the managers, and the other two-thirds I could keep. At Apple, I had to replace them all, which, which causes, as you can imagine, even that much more chaos. And so all of that, plus the cash crunch, plus the quality problems with blowing, you know, exploding power books and, and all sorts of stuff, like took about a year to sort out. But after that year, I had my arms around it, and was, things were starting to click. And what's so ironic is the board lost its patience, just exactly at the time when things were starting to fall into place. And what I tried to tell them was that the bottom line is a lagging indicator. You've got to be doing things right before you're going to see it on the bottom line. And we had finally started to do some things right. A few quarters later, we start seeing profits. Wow. But there's, there, there are stories in here of, of it, it's frustrating for me as a reader to read. I can imagine what you must have lived through short-sightedness with the opportunity to put a Mac in Mission Impossible, to have Tom Cruise with that close-up of the Apple logo on there. No-brainer, right? Yeah. <laughs> costs you nothing. <laughs> it costs us nothing. Except except we did do an ad campaign around, and of course that costs something, but yeah, the but actual I, placement costs yeah, us nothing. Exactly. I mean, the, the, the advertising, you know, what, $5 million out of a budget of $190 million? Right. 
yeah, what's, what's, what's wrong with this picture? And Tom, you know, and Tom Cruise had never been associated with any product uh, ever, so it was a real coup for us. To me, it was uh, it was a slam dunk, easy decision, and even that decision, as I say in the book, very controversial. What was your first indication that something was gravely, fatally wrong? Well, I went to my first employee meeting, and uh, so it was a few weeks into the job, and I invited everyone together so they could get to see the new guy, ask me questions. I can make some comments to them about what we had to do and what direction. And uh, before I went on, and we went did this in the Flint Center, which held about 2,500 people, very elegant center. They do operas and things there. And so right before I went on stage, someone thought to bring a beach ball. And they are proceeding to bounce the beach ball and giggle and laugh and yell and, and so forth. So I walked out on stage and I said, good morning, boys and girls. <laughs> and that brought down the crowd because they recognized in an instant that that was exactly right. And that's, you know, where else can you imagine... Can you imagine Gerstner walking into an IBM meeting and all of the employees bouncing a beach ball and giggling at the same time? It's just, it's, it's uh, bizarre. And that was my first clue, but not my last, of uh, the fact that we had some work to do. After this short break, I'll ask Gil Emilio if some companies just don't deserve to be saved. Now back to my 1998 conversation with Gil Emilio. Did it seem as surreal to you at the time as it now seems to me when I'm reading your book? Uh, it, it really did. Uh, I, I, I cannot, I, I never had the emotional highs and lows anywhere I ever worked as I did at Apple. Because what is so intensely frustrating is to know what you're supposed to do and beat your brains against uh, the wall trying to get people to just follow, the, you know, the, the direction because you know this is the right strategy. And finally, as I said, after about a year, people finally figured it out. Okay, oh, yeah, you know, maybe Gil does know what he's talking about. Maybe this isn't such a bad idea. Why don't we give it a try? And things started to fall into place. We introduced, my last six months, we introduced six new products, all of them on time, all of them to rave reviews, uh, all of them at our quality standards. Uh, culminating in Mac OS 8, which is the operating system that was a revolutionary change and some people argue rescued the company. Um, and, and at the end, I was starting to get the support that I probably should have had from day one. Uh, and, and you might ask, how did I know that other than the fact that products were coming out on time? And it was because I actually saw a couple of people coming to work with a coat and tie on. <laughs> to say back to me, boss, we understand it's a serious business. And let me ask you, I guess maybe maybe kind of a, tell me if this is too cynical of a question, but are there some companies that just don't deserve to be saved? No, I, I never feel that way, especially, especially one that's created a product like the Mac. I mean, it's it's uh, it really did change the world, and, and well, well, I think uh, Apple may never, ever have the... Uh, the luster that it had once upon a time. Uh, I think that uh, that it can be saved. But but what you, what you're really referring to is a is a class of companies I call icon companies. They're companies that are larger than life, 
and that have to be managed differently, have to be led differently. They're the Disneys and the and the Apples and maybe a handful of others that that require the special uh, chemistry to make them work. And and I I went in, you know, and I'm sort of a nuts and bolts CEO guy, lots of experience, lots of technical back uh, background uh, credentials and so forth. And I went in and ran it like it was a normal company. And I couldn't understand at first why the heck nothing was working. I finally figured it out. So I think it's not so much that whether they need to be saved or not. I really think they are worth saving. I think they're real American treasures, truthfully. But I do think one of my learning experiences from this was you got to run those differently. Maybe, if nothing else, Apple deserves to be saved just so that there will be a counterbalance to Bill Gates. That's a perfectly good reason. I think the, uh, you know, there, there's... There's only two ways we're going to get, one of two ways that we're going to get this industry, the computer industry, back to a healthy competitive state again. Right now it is, you know, basically two companies own all the profits in the industry. And, uh, and that's not a healthy state. It ultimately robs the consumer of innovation and, uh, and, uh, new ideas. And, uh, so there's only one of two ways. One way is for Apple to follow through on what was my five-year strategy, which is to recognize that the architecture that we have today for personal computers, which has a rigid connection between the hardware, the operating system, and the application, change one and you have to change them all, really works to reinforce the monopoly power that Microsoft has. So what I, my strategy was, was to create an operating system that could, that was hardware agnostic, which meant you could run it on any computer and it would still run. So if you had a win, uh, 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 IBM clone, you could buy this new generation system. It would run on it. You'd have a real choice. And you could run any application on it. You could run Windows application, run Mac application. You can run Unix application, run anything on it. So the idea was to create this new breakthrough technology. We think we had it figured out at how to do it. And we were starting now. We knew it would take a few years to get it done. And so my, my mission was, let's get that done. Meanwhile, you know, hang on by the fingernails and let's, and let's see this thing through. Uh, if Apple can successfully pull that off, they will change the dynamic of the entire industry, and we now have an open industry once again instead of a closed industry. The only other way this could be fixed is if the Justice Department steps in and breaks them up. <laughs> I had heard through the popular press, and you're in the p best position to correct me if I'm wrong, was that, that apparently at some point Apple and Intel and and half a dozen other people have been locked in a room for three months and said, come up with something that will do exactly what you were talking about. Regardless of what machine you're working on, it'll, it'll operate. And they came up with it. They came up with a Macintosh that would run on an Intel chip, and the hardware people said, you can't market that. It'll ruin our efforts. Well, th there was some of the the, the... the truth of the matter is there was an attempt to do that. It, 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 it had its flaws, though, more than just the fact that it would have hurt, undermined some of the hardware guys. Uh, there were some other problems with it that uh, that were problematic, but but you know the science of software was advancing uh, at a rapid pace, and by the time we got into 1997, we people had figured out ways to do things like that, and now what you needed someone to do was actually pursue it and make it happen. The only company motivated to do this is Apple, because Microsoft doesn't want to do it. They love the game the way it is. <laughs> But you described what, what was he call it silo vision with you know, with people right, uh, only right. able to see how it affects their little their little world their little world yeah and uh, obviously as that apocryphal story went the hardware guys were worried about their silo that's right 
That's exactly right. And and uh, when you have that silo mentality, it's suboptimization is a may, maybe a more technical way of saying the same thing, uh, but the whole company suffers. And again, it goes back to the idea that there wasn't a company-wide overarching strategy that right. everybody from, so, each, from each cubicle knew exactly what they were supposed to do toward a common goal. And signed up for. And that's, exactly. That's right. Wow. Well, I think there was one other um, uh, point that uh, maybe I, I, I might want to stress, and that is uh, this, this notion of innovation versus competition. Uh, one of the points I make in the, in the story that besides this culture problem, this adolescent culture which I described, the other Achilles heel of Apple was the fact that uh, it had a history of avoiding competition rather than building up its competitive muscles. And I noticed this fairly early on and said this is one of the potentially fatal flaws of this company. It was, it was for that reason that they didn't license the Macintosh operating system in the mid-80s when they should have licensed it so that the whole world would have used it as a standard. Uh, they wanted to try to prevent it from having to compete. It's the reason why prices stayed too high too long for Mac boxes. They didn't want to really compete. And uh, what I told everyone was that we were going to have to learn how to compete or we weren't going to survive. And so I accelerated our licensing program. Uh, and I did that because I wanted to expand the market, but also because I wanted us to learn how to compete. Uh, I started driving the cost down, uh, took, took substantial price cuts in machines, uh, increased the performance of the desktop computers by a factor of 10 in 18 months, uh, moved the quality index from being dead last to, to first in the industry, and started to do all the things to make us more competitive. Now, that job is just beginning. I mean, there was so much more to be done, and I, I had a lot a lot of things on my plate uh, yet to yet to accomplish. Uh, to Steve uh, Jobs' credit, although Steve and I obviously don't always see eye to eye on things, uh, he has pretty much, with only a few exceptions, followed through on the strategy that we had mapped out together uh, in the early early 1997. And uh, I'm con convinced that if he sticks with it and doesn't sort of get distracted and wander off into the lily fields. <laughs> Uh, that, uh, that they'll, uh, that they will be able to go on to the next step in their recovery. See, I had laid out a program that was a three-step program. One, fixed the balance sheet, which mm -hmm. I did during mm -hmm. my watch. Which badly needed to be fixed. Badly needed to be fixed. Number two was get the bottom line profitable, which we were on the way to doing and has now been accomplished. And third, start growing the top line, the revenue line again. That has yet to be done. And that, of course, is the acid test, which remains to be seen. Gil Emilio is 79 now. He's been a venture capitalist since 1998. And you can find easy Amazon links to Gil Emilio's book at our website, HeardEverything.com. And HeardEverything.com is also where you'll hear my interview from 1987 with another former Apple CEO, the famed John Scully. Someday we are going to see personal computers that may look nothing like the ones we have today. They may be small enough to wear on your wrist, to be sewn into the fabric of your clothes, or even worn in your spectacles. We'll have an infrastructure of information over telecommunications lines. And my conversation with Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak. I had no money, and because I had never done it before, that, in, that I had to find very cheap ways to do things that were affordable, and I also had to 
do a very good job without knowing how it's been done before, which is lousier. And of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, she turned a remarkable legal career into a rather lucrative profession on television. My 2002 interview with former Court TV host, Catherine Cryer. The rule of law, which was supposed to free us from the tyranny of King George, has become a tyranny in and of itself. And it is managed by the lawyers, the lobbyists, the legislators, the bureaucrats. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.